This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 20 for December 29th, 2005. Last episode of this year. The last episode of 2005. And we've done 20 of them. Yeah. And we'll do another 52, I predict, next year. I have a feeling <laughs> Something we're like on that. track. <laughs> We've been very consistent, and there's always lots to talk about. But one of the things that uh, uh, you started in a, a few episodes ago, and I think it's a really great idea, is every fourth episode we answer uh, listeners' questions. Well, yeah, you know, the, just the the nature of what we're doing, suggesting things to people that, that they're able to go try. Sometimes people come back, you know, like more than one person with like, whoops, what about this or what about that? So it really gives us a chance and just, to, you know, sort of know what people are thinking, too. Well, before we do that, let's talk about a big hole in Windows. Cause, and this was my original concern with doing every fourth episode on, you know, a schedule that we might miss, you know, answering questions that we might miss a big security story so but we're not going to do that because we're going to tell you about it yeah this week we've got one this all exploded yesterday on december 28th um there's a brand newly discovered windows metafile um exploit which is a is really bad it's it's been called a zero day exploit it is able to install malware in people's computers just by visiting a website. In fact, the, the, the guys at F-Secure, while they were fetching a file in a DOS box, it infected their machine because they had Google's desktop um, search system going. And it turns out when they fetched the file, Google's desktop system indexed it. And the process of indexing the file caused the exploit to run. Wow. Um, so... Um, so let me on, let me define a couple of terms real quickly, or ask you to define a couple of terms real quickly before we go further. What is a metafile? Um, a, a Windows metafile is has been a format that's existed from the very beginning of Windows. It's a it's sort of a scripting language in the sort of in the feeling of a PDF, the way a PDF is able to define rectangles and squares and things. So it's a it's a different kind of image format than people are used to. You know, we're used to GIFs and JPEGs and, and PNG files. Um, we're also what's, used What's the to, extension for it? Is it... Is it well, it, it's WMF, okay. except that just filtering WMF files doesn't solve the problem, because it turns out that other f- image formats are able to cause Windows to execute the same code. Windows actually looks at the content of the file, not just the file extension. So you're able to masquerade WMF files in non-WMF image formats. So you could distribute this as an attachment to an email with any arbitrary extension, but more likely it's going to happen on a website as an as an image or just something that's part of the page or well um, ex- when IE displays it, it this will affect um, Firefox Opera IE so it's doesn't browser, matter wow it's, yep it's browser agnostic at the moment this is so new that they were only seeing websites exploiting it but we're expecting a virus to appear at any moment an, an email born virus because when your viewer sh- open you you open the email your viewer shows an image that can install all malware on your machine. And this uh, kind of underscores the fact that even a, a what appears to be a pure data file can contain a virus or malware, as you say. Now, right. you said it's a zero-day exploit. What's that mean? Well, it, it means that it is it has the ability to propagate very quickly and that it does not require um, any direct user interaction. I mean, there are many vectors that will get this thing into people's machines. Now, this happened yesterday. We have no response from Microsoft yet, although they do have a page on their site acknowledging the exploit. The good news is there's something that anyone who knows about this, anyone listening to this podcast, can do immediately. It's it's possible to unregister Windows handling of the vulnerable DLL. What will happen is that like the 
in in Windows Explorer, the image thumbnails that Windows Explorer would normally show, they will stop functioning, but you want them to stop functioning. That's part of the problem. <laughs> exactly. Files, yeah. Exactly. It, 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 it's Windows display of this of a file which is infected with this like this malicious um, exploit does cause the problem. So, uh, on the show notes for this episode, which we always have posted, you know, um, Leo, you can copy the string if you want to, or just point people to the show notes page on my site. But I have an, a, an extensive dialogue um, explaining what the problem is, with lots of links to other sources of information, but also with a step-by-step explanation for how anybody can just drop a string into the the run field under their start menu to to run a a little utility program that Windows provides to unregister the handling of basically of, of this exploit and they will be safe then from from any exploitation of this until Microsoft catches up with a patch. Now, as we know, Microsoft generally patches on the second Tuesday of every month. This is so bad, I would expect something from them as quickly as they can react. Because, I mean, already we're seeing, um, I mean, the, the, the malware guys are jumping on this fast. Oh, so there's already exploits. Many exploits. Many within twenty four hours. Wow. Yes, yes. And I mean, sites are exploiting it. the The exploitation code is is gone. You know, like wildfire across the internet. So listeners want to do this immediately, and and, and probably you know email their friends with uh, again a, a link to our show notes page to get people to protect themselves. Yeah. The word, re- the word really needs to get out about. And, this. and I won't put the the string in uh, my on the Twit website. I'll just put a. Link link to your because you describe it you tell how to do it. i mean it's much more elaborate than just giving people a string so uh we'll point people to grc.com slash sn slash notes dash zero two zero dot htm i know that's a lot to remember but this week in tech.com will have it on the on the on the entry for this uh page so wow well, and, that's scary that's really yeah scary. Well, and, and also as i always do my the top the, the top of the grc com homepage will have a link to our security now page and 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 this week I will have a special link directly to the show notes Good. so right. so just going to grc.com's homepage will also take people because I mean th- this is a big bad problem this strikes me as the kind of thing that an antivirus uh, probably wouldn't be much help in I mean heuristics might catch this kind of thing but but likely not um, I would imagine you could design something specifically for it, so it might very well be that the antivirus guys will jump on this even more qu- quickly than Microsoft can. But, if, but you're not currently protected against it in all likelihood, right? And it happens oh, ab- so fast that... Whew. Yes, a- absolutely not. It's, it's funny, too, because it's taking advantage of a f- deliberate feature which was built into the metafiles. Metafiles, as I, as I indicated, is sort of like a scripting, a scripting format. Um, on the web, there's something called scalable vector graphics, right. uh, SVG. And, and if the metafiles are, are, sim- are similar to that in that you define rectangles and lines, and so Windows sort of draws them. In fact, what a metafile actually is is like GDI the the, the so it's a small Net- it's a small program really it's it's a little program that's basically calling the windows graphics primitives right. to draw rectangles and text and so forth and that's why it can be taken advantage of it's really not a pure data file it's a program file it is a little scripting format, yeah, yeah. and and what's interesting is that there's a there's a hook in there saying if the metafile fails, execute the following procedure. Well, that's what this thing does. Oh, interesting. Is it's actually executing? It's taking advantage of the ability to execute a procedure in the event of a metafile failure. So the the malware registers itself as this metafile <laughs> procedure, and then fails the metafile, causing the procedure to execute. I mean, it's it's a perfect example of this, uh, you know, sort of a nice thing that represents an inherent security vulnerability, which has finally been leveraged. And I've seen some reports saying that all versions of Windows, even like back in Millennium Edition and probably before, are vulnerable to this because it's it's built into the protocol. It's interesting too because it's not a buffer overflow exploit. You don't have to trick anything. This, you're actually behaving as Microsoft intended you to. 
Right. <laughs> Unfortunately, Microsoft, and this is the, the big flaw in security, assumed that people were kind and benevolent and nobody would ever take advantage of this to do bad things. Well, like putting scripting in email, which is, you know, yeah. still my biggest source of, you know, head shaking. Well, and true type fonts are also scripts. I mean, a lot of graphics file formats are not really bits. They're, they're program code. And it's a, it's a, it's a very powerful technique, but it is yeah. prone to exploitation if you're not very, very careful. Got to sandbox it. Um, in terms of errata, before we start our, our Q&A, one person made the comment that uh, I've been promoting the idea of cutting and pasting these really long, hairy passwords uh, using Windows Clipboard as the transport. And he said, you know, Steve, it's worthwhile mentioning that you don't want to leave the password on, <laughs> on the, the clipboard. clipboard. It's good like, point. oh, <laughs> good point. I'm definitely going to mention that. <laughs> you know, there, it's funny because we leave data trails, little crumbs behind us all the time. You know, our yeah. our cache, our swap files, page files. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of data left behind. And even well, the I, Slack space on your hard drive contains data. So. And, and, and our own browser caches. I mean, yeah. browser, browser caching is done so that... As you move around a site, you're not having to compl- to always reload the same images that are like common among multiple pages on a website, but but the browser caches everything it can, and it's it really does leave a trail that can be taken advantage of. And then one last thing before we get into our, our, our questions. Um, OpenSSH, the forthcoming version, it'll be 4.3 of OpenSSH, is offering a VPN-style tunnel in addition to the traditional port forwarding that we've talked about many times with SSH. Um, and so it's going to be extending the, the the protocol to actually do this sort of tunneling. However, it'll have the same problems that TCP tunnels always have. And in fact, in an interview that uh, Damian Miller, the, the developer of OpenSSH, gives, he says, and I'm quoting him, like any VPN system that uses a reliable transport like TCP, an open SSH tunnel can alter packet delivery dynamics, I, uh, e.g. a dropped transport packet will stall all tunneling traffic. So it probably isn't good for things like VOIP over a lossy network. Uh, use IPsec for that, but it's still used for, for, for most other things. So uh, several people have written to me mentioning the fact that they've heard open SSH is going to be offering a VPN tunnel. You know, what does that mean? Well, it means it's, it's another good thing but it's not as good as using UDP as the tunneling transport. So OpenSSH is never quite going to give us what we want, whereas OpenVPN does. All right, let's move on to the questions. We have quite a few for you, Steve, starting uh, with this one. And again, these are composites, uh, questions you receive over and over again from a variety of different people. So uh, credit to everybody who asked this question. I have a question about secure web pages. Some bank and credit card websites ask for a username and password from what appears to be an unsecured homepage. So Washington Mutual does it, MBMA and NA does it. Uh, when using such sites, I normally click the logon button without entering any info, so I get forwarded then to a secure page, informing me of my error and allowing me to try again. I have this question, too. He says, am I being too paranoid, or is this method of logging in actually secure? That's a great question, and as you said, a bunch of people have asked. Um, Most secure sites give people a sort of a warm and fuzzy feeling about entering data into a secure form by moving them onto a secure page before they ask them to fill anything in. You know, I, I wrote my own e-commerce system uh, at GRC, and, and I do exactly that. I, I put people onto a secure page um, before I ask them to provide any information. The advantage is that you're able to right-click on the page, bring up the properties, check the the actual security certificate that the page has to make sure that you're on the page you that you think you are and that you're not victim to some sort of redirection scam or uh, phishing exploitation uh, as has happened in the past. But now I'm on my Bank of America site. I'm at the login page. There, it isn't a secure page, and I just checked the, the, the. There's no certificate for it. It says right. website identity not verified. So that is a good question. Am yeah, I safe to enter my data here? Yeah, it, it's a great question. the The answer is probably, but there. But this is the 
problem. There's no real way to guarantee it. Now, if you were to look at the code, if you were to view the source of the page, the actual HTML, chances are that the link that you would see, that is the, the URL associated with the submit button, it would be HTTPS colon slash slash and then wh wh whatever page is going to be accepting the data. So the point is that it's not the security of the page you're, you're filling the form data in on that matters. It's the security of the page you go to ca that carries and that accepts that data. So it's possible and likely that, for example, Bank of America or Washington Mutual or, or whomever has set up this site, it's almost certainly the case that you're going to a secure page and that's what's receiving your confidential data. But, I mean, the reason this is a great question is that unless you somehow verify that, you don't know for sure. And so I really think it's it's a, a fault of the website designer that they don't move you onto a secure page where the form is being filled out, even though technically it's not that page, it's the page that you're going to submit the data to, which is the, the next page you go to, which needs to be secure. And And similarly, if they put you on a secure page, then it's possible that they could use an unsecure button to accept the data. I mean, it's, it's really... Oh, I see, because it's really the page you're going to, not the page you're on that matters. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the idea is that this is all sort of a kludge which evolved after HTML and web pages existed. You know, the, uh, the original concept of the web was just static delivery of pages that, that would, you know, basically people reading pages. There was no original concept of data going the other direction, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that a web user would be submitting data back to the server. So that was grafted on later as an extension to the original concept, and it's got these problems. It's that, you know, it's the link you go to that is that needs to be secured because that's where your data is moving. It's it's not the page you're on. So it's a really great question. There There isn't Without looking at the code of the page that, uh, that you're submitting, there isn't a way to tell whether you're about to be secure or you're about to be non-secure. In fact, I just have been, while you've been talking, browsing the uh, Bank of America page, and it is, the, the post does go to an HTTPS secure site. So, right. in, in a way, this, this is guaranteed secure because I'm looking at it. On the other hand, if I were on a secure site and I didn't look at the source, I might be going to an insecure site to do the submit. That's yep. good to know. It's, it's actually kind of parallel to a question I've asked you, which is, I have secure web-based email, but, it, but it's, does the login doesn't seem to be secure. And you've reassured me now that it's still secure. Right. Oftentimes, if you float your mouse over the button, sometimes your browser will show you the link down in the, in the status bar at the mm -hmm. bottom of your uh, of your browser. Oh, the button might tell you. Oh. The button might. Normally, it's more the case with normal links instead of post links, wh where where right. the, the the data is not a GET request; it's a POST request, which is what most forms now use because that's a much more secure way of submitting data. Because otherwise. Um, third-party advertisers things you know we've talked before about URL information leakage which is also a problem yeah and Bank of America which is uh, I have mixed feelings about this they do put a padlock next to this I mean, I, I'm hovering over the the submit button it doesn't show me any security right. but they put a graphic of a padlock in this box which is I, I'm a little of mixed feelings because that is deceptive in a way because it isn't the same as the padlock you see in your browser. Right. Anybody can put a padlock graphic, but when you click it, it does explain uh, exactly what you've just said. And it says to provide the fastest access, we don't make the page secure, but once you sub when you do press submit, it is secure. That's really interesting because, I mean, it no longer is the case that this represents any sort of overhead. I mean, lots of sites do it. <laughs> I do it. It's not that. It, it, it's not slow, is it? It's dumb. <laughs> I mean, there is some so, handshaking, but it's not. I mean, come on. And so, so the idea that, they're had, that they've gone to all the trouble of putting up an explanation rather than just securing that page, that's just quacky. <laughs> question two, and actually it's a really interesting question. The Hamachi server, and we all know how much you love Hamachi, and I do too, and how you recommended it, was down a couple of days ago. It's back online now. Um, that's kind of scary. 
you want to talk about that? I mean, we are well, when you use Hamachi, you're reliant on it, aren't you, on their server? Yes, totally. And and so you know, the, the, the guy wonders if it's useful for for. I mean, he, he wants to make the point that we're relying on Hamachi to basically build our little network for us and and we're completely dependent upon it now it's the, certainly the case with the VOIP systems you know you and I are using Google talk we relied on Google talk being up in right. order to initiate our connection but but it's not the case that this system would work without Hamachi without Hamachi being up now one of the things that Alex mentioned in his as he's moved his versions forward is that the the clients now do not depend upon Hamachi's server to be up to maintain an existing set of tunnels, but it does have to be there in order to establish a new network. And in fact, he's been doing some versioning on his server in the last couple of days, and apparently uh, there was there was an actual outage also. And so. People need to recognize that, yeah, it's really cool that this thing is free, but there is a dependence on the server being up. And that's, of course, the same with Hotspot VPN or IPIG or any of the stuff that we've talked about. It will not be true once users are using their own open VPN scenario, which is where we're headed, of course. But, you know, nothing beats Hamachi for ease of use. It comes with this downside. I set up my home network, someone writes, with WPA, as you recommended, and a pre-shared key using Steve's password generator. WPA worked fine on all my wireless G NICs, those network cards that support 802.11G, but not with the old 802.11B card in my laptop. Question, WPA doesn't work with a wireless B network card unless the new driver for that NIC supports it, correct? Almost. Certainly having, if you can update your drivers, there is a chance that B will work. There's nothing about the... B doesn't preclude it. Exactly. There's nothing about the B-ness versus the G-ness of the the (laughs) Wi-Fi that that does or doesn't mean WPA. So if you can get later model drivers for the card and they support WPA, you're in great shape. If not, there, McAfee does offer a free WPA client, which I have, I've actually personally seen it work on a laptop whose, whose Wi-Fi, whose built-in Wi-Fi driver did not support WPA. I have a link to it on, on our show notes page. Um, it's a long link, so it's not something I, I can even say over the air. But they're trying to sell you on that page this link goes to much fancier sort of radius style dynamic real-time authentication which you don't need so read the page carefully there's a place when you're installing it where you say disable the dynamic authentication you definitely want to do that then you're just using the pre-shared key which is what I'm promoting as really all the security you need so it may be that you can use this free client to upgrade your web only system to run WPA and I know that it it has worked for people so it's not necessarily a firmware update to the card you have to make it's merely a a driver or maybe even not even a driver a client that you need yeah, they call it a, a, a Windows client software. It's not, a, it's not even a driver. It's just instead of the... Well, see, I mean, the problem is on some versions of Windows, there is no WPA support. So that would fix that. Exactly. Yeah. But, does it, but the driver would also have to support it or not? No, it does not need to support okay. it. Okay, it's just merely that you need the client. Right. Got it. What's the security of Windows Remote Desktop? Oh, we've talked about this before, which is so easy to use, one man writes, and which you and Leo often talk about. One thing I've always done is connected via RDP to my home PC from the office. I work as the network administrator, so no worry about the IT department catching on. But your show made me wonder about the security of Remote Desktop. Is it at all encrypted? Could it be sniffed? Would it be better to conduct the RDP session on a port other than its default, 3389? Perhaps that's all uh, should be a show on its own. And and just to share what I do in terms of security, it's pretty basic. I have my router configured to allow traffic in on that port, which could be viewed as somewhat of a security threat. However, I also do some filtering with my zone alarm firewall to only allow my office IP address through. So even though the port's open, only one IP address is allowed. It seems to work when I connect from a friend's PC and log in. Even as administrator, I'm almost instantly dropped by my firewall before I can even attempt to shut down the firewall or anything. 
Well, so. it's, a lo- it's a long question, yeah. but it's a really, it's a really good one. Okay. Um, so we have a guy who's running um, remote desktop at home. He's opened a port through his router, so and he's using three three eight nine or three three eight nine, which is the default. And then he's using his the firewall on his machine. Uh, he's basically set up a packet filter so that only that port will be accepted coming from his office IP. Well, okay, a couple things. First of all. Um, always changing remote desktop's default port is a super idea. And the good news is there are pages on on the web that provide you with instructions for how to do that. So the default port 3389 can be changed and that's the first thing I would do. Now that's security by obscurity. It's not really security. And I suppose there are sniffers that would just try the protocol of course, it'd take you a lot longer, but across all a bunch of ports, right? Right. I mean, certainly, you don't want to rely on security by obscurity, but it's better than not having any obscurity. <laughs> or and being so, wide open and saying, here I am, come get me at 3389. Yeah, so so for example, if, if as just happened yesterday, we were talking about the, this Windows Metafile exploit, if a horrible new exploit was found in the Windows Remote Desktop, then what would immediately happen is that worms would start scanning for port 3389 trying to get in on that port. They would just all assume the default. So the, the, so being on 33890, for example, or anything else, is you know really the first thing you want to do. Now, secondly, um, doing what this guy has done, that is establishing a port filter so that he's only accepting incoming connections from his office IP, that is really good security. It's, if, for example, it's what I do in order to have Telnet available on my remote um, uh, equipment at level three. Mm-hmm. The, the, unfortunately, the equipment I'm using doesn't let me use a super strong password. So what I've done is I'm filtering the traffic so that only my home network range is even able to see those ports open where they are. I mean, nobody else is able to see them, and you can't spoof those IPs because they're TCP connections, which are, all, are inherently immune to any kind of spoofing. Oh, I didn't know that. So oh, yeah. Even raw sockets don't let you spoof TCP. Well, raw sockets would allow you to make up a, a, a fake source IP, right. but the TCP connection handshake, it, it sends a packet in each direction. Oh, yeah. Both, you couldn't, both. It couldn't get back, could it? Exactly. <laughs> right. There's no return address. I get exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So what this guy has done is absolutely secure. The only threat would be somebody on his on his local Ethernet would be able to use ARP poisoning, but you know that would have to be somebody in, in his own home network, which to is poses it, him on on the IP address. Exactly, yeah. and, and there you'd have a man in the middle vulnerability, but you are completely invulnerable out on the internet. So what he's done is really good, and I will just say that. Otherwise, RDP is not secure. This is one of those things Microsoft keeps trying to do, and they're up to version 4 now, and they still haven't got it. The, the, we talked about briefly, there, there's a tool called Kane Enable, and the current version of Kane Enable, which is freely downloadable, has complete RDP, man-in-the-middle, spoofing and decoding, so that if, if, if it knew that that's what was going on, and if it was able to insert itself with a man in the middle attack it could and it does give you a complete transcript of everything the user does and types over his remote desktop connection so you cannot rely on rdp security all by itself you'd have to tunnel it through vpn as we've talked about you know running remote desktop over hamachi or ipig or in, in, in this case this user is just using it with port filtering so that it only accepts a connection from his office IP range, and that's really good security. SSH, up in SSH, uses um, RSA fingerprinting in a similar way, saying, you know, if it, this is the fingerprint for that machine that's contacting me, and if it's a known machine, allow it, otherwise don't. Well, what you're talking about is extremely good authentication, right. and, and that's what you need in order to avoid man-in-the-middle attacks, strong endpoint authentication, which we'll be talking about very soon um, in 2006. Even better than the IP identification. You can't, you mean, you can't fake that. It's a public, it's a, you know, RSA key. Um, <laughs> uh, Plato in Poughkeepsie writes, Biometrics, what do you guys think of all the cool new fingerprint scanners? 
<laughs> I'm setting you up on that one. That's okay. Um, there's lots of people who are asking about biometrics. Yeah. Um, I'm scared of them. Well, you saw that. Maybe you didn't see the story that uh, 83% of all fingerprint scanners can be fooled by a Play-Doh thumb. Oh, I see what you mean. You didn't oh, see oh, this. Oh, oh. You didn't see this. I, I thought you said Plato, Play-Doh. Not, not Play-Doh. <laughs> yeah, now, I mean, th- th- that's a perfect example. I see these things that are like these little scanners on the end of a yeah. USB cord. And I, I mean, I just know that that they're going to be a problem. It's kind of hard. I mean, you have to get an imprint of the actual guy's thumbprint and then use the Play-Doh to make a reverse. Well, so. actually, th- there are, in, unless you wipe one of those scanners off deliberately, Oh, after you've removed there's your, a fingerprint you, yes it turns out of course you you can fill a bag of water and push it against the plate again and it thinks you're back oh that's not good now the good news is on my little toshiba libretto and also on the um ibm thinkpad there's a different kind of scanner it's a fingerprint scanner but, but you have to draw your finger across it it's a capacitive scanner instead of a static image scanner and so the beauty of that is that at no point is your entire fingerprint available on a plate instead you're scanning it across like a little single line scanner and so it's a dynamic print which it acquires over time that's much more secure but overall the whole idea that that any sort of single static biometric is being used for full authentication i think that's always a bad idea for example when i go to access my equipment at level three i have two things i have to present i have a i have a badge which I wave by their badge scanner. Then I stick my hand in a biometric reader, which reads the the various parameters from my palm. So the idea is that that's called two-factor authentication, and it is far better than single-factor authentication. So what, what that prevents is it would prevent somebody from getting my badge without my knowledge and going behind my back to the facility and getting in. Because the chances are that they could have my badge and have an identical hand to mine is really much smaller than them just get, being able to get the badge by itself. So, so in real in real terms, I would say if you had a system that required a password and a thumbprint or a fingerprint, that makes lots of sense because then it prevents somebody from getting your password or discovering it independently and being able to log on as you. Because again, the chance that they're going to have a fingerprint which matches yours or have a you know a spare ball of play-doh in their in, in their pocket is very remote but don't assume that just the plain old as convenient as it is that the plain old thumbprint scanners are really secure they're they're not really you know the rule of thumb is anytime something seems really convenient you got you got a problem <laughs> secure is not conven- does not equal convenient exactly regarding the information you gave in episode 19 using the uh, security connection uh, that google's gmail offers that's uh, https colon slash slash mail.google.com for Gmail. If one wanted to use this as their only email account when using an open Wi-Fi hotspot, would this provide enough security so I don't need a VPN for my email? Um, is is the secure? And I have on Fastmail, which I love, my IMAP uh, email provider also has a secure log. In fact, they're, they're nice. They have a public terminal and a secure login, so it saves no information, and, and it's HTTPS. Is that safe over Wi-Fi? Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's the short one-word answer. Yeah. Um, that's going to be using SSL, and we're going to be talking again early in 2006 about SSL and certificates and authentication and, and all this stuff. You you would want to make sure that 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 the connection and the certificate had not been spoofed by right-clicking on the secure page and looking at the certificate. I really, I'm going to start talking about this a lot because it's the way phishing scams work and it's the way SSL man-on-the-middle attacks work is by presenting people with fake credentials because that breaks the authentication which is inherently the way these protocols are secure. So you really want to make sure that you're actually talking to the server you think you are. If, that, if, if however you are, you and you're, for example, using secure uh, Google Mail or or whatever then you know all of your email work would then be secure in an otherwise insecure area you know a hotspot or in a hotel or so forth 
Very good to know. How secure are NAT routers, Steve? Do stateful routers offer more security? I guess he's talking about stateful packet inspection. The oh, SPI. SPI. Right. Do firewall routers or routers build as firewall offer more security than NAT, just plain old NAT routers? It's a really good question. The you know we've talked about NAT routers extensively as providing inherent security because they don't allow unsolicited traffic to come into your network. My sense is that's really enough. Now, if manufacturers are going to offer more features, for example, stateful packet inspection, where they, they're actually tracking the state of the protocol as it goes back and forth, I mean, it provides theoretically better protection, and I like the idea that maybe it offers much more uh, configuration flexibility. For example, the the guy, for example, who was configuring zone alarm only to allow incoming traffic mm-hmm. on a certain port, a firewall router will probably have that built in. So you wouldn't have to use zone alarm on your computer, but instead you could say, allow incoming traffic on this port only from this IP range. So more features of a security nature are probably a good thing, but I wouldn't ever suggest that someone go out and buy like buy another router just to get those more features. Well, and also you could legitimately label any router, that router, a firewall. So it may, just because it says firewall doesn't even mean you get more features. And any NAT router is doing, doing full packet inspection. <laughs> right, right. That, that, that's what it means to have a packet come in and inspect it and comp- check the state of the, of, of, of the connection table to figure out which machine to send it to. Does, that's, uh, does any uh, form of SPI do more than that? Look at the actual contents of the packet or you know, try to assess what's going on, anything like that? They say they do, and it's theoretically possible, but how would we ever know? I mean, no, I mean, really, it's it's just, it's, uh, don't buy one. I mean, if you don't own a router yet, buy the the most secure, fancy, schmancy, stateful packet inspecting <laughs> firefall, you know, router that you can afford. And you but, still may not be getting anything better than your Linksys WRT54G, well, right? Cer- certainly, it, certainly if it's got features that are exposed on the user interface right, of right. the router, if it's got extra fancy, you know, uh, firewall features, timed availability, so like instant messaging is only available during these hours. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of things are cool. And useful, but, yeah. But but really, any NAT router is providing you with great security. Um, beyond that, well, it doesn't hurt. There's a company which uh, shall remain nameless, mostly because I can't, just can't remember the name, that <laughs> sells, sells what is essentially a router with an on-off switch and for twice the price and claims it to be a you know high-security uh, firewall router. That's got to be the dumb idea. Of the <laughs> <laughs> well, you could turn off the internet. I mean, that or is secure. Could, or you could just unplug your computer. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. Just shut down. That would have the same effect, wouldn't it? Uh, if I, another uh, correspondent writes, and by the way, if I can ask people when they fill out those forms, if you, if you want to get a question on the show, it'd be great if you put your name and city just so we can give you credit. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, yeah, just, you know, say make up a name if you want. You know, uh, while, while, before we leave the, the, the last topic, I'll yeah. mention that one of the cool things that Windows 2000 and XP do is if you right-click on Network Neighborhood and then do Properties, it'll show you your various adapters. You're able to right-click and disable an adapter. And in fact, I use it on my laptop all the time because I've got, you know, adapters coming out of my ears. I've got multiple Wi-Fi. I've got, you know, VPN. I've got several different interfaces. And I deliberately keep them all disabled. And then I selectively enable the one that I want to use. So that's another nice way of sort of taking your machine off of the, uh, off of your LAN if you're not using it. I mean, it's certainly not super secure, but it's a little nicer than literally unplugging your computer from your router. And it would protect you against incoming traffic, although if you had a bad boy on your system, right, they could probably turn it back on. No if, doubt. If they were smart, you know, if they were checking for that, I guess. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll make up a name. Uh, Doleful in uh, Duluth writes, <laughs> if I use my home network from somewhere else to access the Internet, 
what would the resulting speed be? Uh, that's really a good question, and, and, and it brings up a good point. Um, we will be promoting the idea of people running some sort of an open VPN server on their home network, uh, either their their own little you know plastic Linksys router that they've reflashed with open VPN or running um, open VPN server on a Windows machine, which is then used not only to give them access in, inside their network, but as their connection to the Internet. But we know that many connections to the Internet are not the same speed upstream as they are downstream. Instead of being symmetric speed, they are asymmetric connections. And what's normally the case is that the traffic downstream toward them is high speed, for example, for downloading, but the, their outbound traffic is low speed, and this allows um, their providers to basically sort of change the bandwidth allocation to optimize it, because upstream traffic actually takes more channel bandwidth if you're going to have high speed upstream traffic. But when you're out roaming around, and you're connecting to your server at home, then your traffic has to come down your connection to your home, and then if you're going out on the internet, back out your connection to go on the internet. Basically what this means is that your effective speed is the lower of your upstream and downstream speed. It's not the greater. So surfing the internet using your home connection as your as your entry point to the internet would be slower than just using it um, like from, from from your home and not needing to have traffic coming downstream as well that's a very good point yeah, yeah. Uh, can the sony rootkit or any rootkit be removed by reformatting the hard drive and doing a clean install of the operating system isn't that one way to get rid of it Yes, absolutely. Um, it's, Nothing's going to survive a format and install. Nothing. Now, it's a little trickier if you had a multi-boot environment where you had multiple operating systems on the drive. You'd want to make sure that you, that you got it off of the drive. There, there are viruses which are able to install themselves in the partition table uh, and in the first track of the hard drive that are able to install or able to survive reformats and reinstalls of the operating system, but that's not a rootkit. A rootkit is a compromise of the OS, so if you wipe it clean and reinstall it, you know, that rootkit is gone. Good. Sony, by the way, uh, yesterday on Friday recently announced that they were going to settle a class action lawsuit against them over the uh, rootkit, and they're going to offer people money for the CDs that they bought, and they're going to offer trade-ins, and they're going to stop doing it and offer an uninstaller, so maybe, maybe they've seen the light. Oh, if, they, if this hasn't that. shown them the light, they'll never <laughs> Nothing see <will>. it. <laughs> <laughs> Can the, uh, for the VPN, I would uh, love to set one up on my home server. Unfortunately, my DSL provider gives me a private IP address, not a public IP address. Is there any way, short of getting a public IP address, to connect to my home network from the outside world? Wow, that's another great question. So I haven't heard so, of this. So what is a, uh, what is going on here? Um, and and it's, it is becoming more and more common. He's actually got a provider. His ISP is giving him like a 10-dot address or a oh. 192.168. So th- he doesn't actually get from his ISP a publicly routable IP like most cable modem users have, for example, you know, is 66 or 64 or something. Um, that seems like a good idea from a security point of view. Well, it is, because he's never having any unsolicited stuff coming in. Basically, what it means is his provider is running a big NAT router on his behalf. The bad news is it it totally precludes him from running any servers. Uh, Which is probably another reason the ISP does it. Well, exactly. Um, So the only solution for him is Hamachi. Hamachi gets around that. Yes, if Hamachi will work for him, and he'll have to give it a try, but if Hamachi will work, it will, in the same way that Hamachi is able to go outbound through a user's own local NAT router, it ought to be able to go outbound through his ISP's NAT router. It does NAT traversal with the ISP's router. Exactly. Interesting. So it, it, it tunnels through, basically, the router, and you've established a connection. 
Yeah, so I would imagine that that if Hamachi works for him, it's the only thing I can think of that would work for him. Another reason to love Hamachi. <laughs> uh, this is kind of related to the uh, slowdown with the uh, uh, question before. Isn't using a VPN inherently slower than just an unprotected connection? I guess the encryption would slow it down, wouldn't it? Um, the encryption can, and in fact, in the case, for example, of, of Hamachi, Alex will be offering a non-encrypted variant for Hamachi, specifically for gaming guys who are extremely concerned uh-huh. about, about the latency through the network. The fact is, on, on modern computers, encryption is a very low overhead overall. They're fast. The, they really are. I mean, encryption, I mean, you could even use RC4, which is virtually, I mean, it's so fast and still very good encryption that it's just representing no overhead. So, well, for example, you know, I, I'm going to be using RC4 in, in my own experimenting w- with VOIP stuff because I don't want encryption to slow us down, right. and there's just no need for anything more. However, VPNs are slow not because of encryption, but for two reasons, and I want to I want to hammer this home. Um, in fact, people are complaining about IPIG and slowdowns with IPIG, and in fact, IPIG's stalling sometimes. Stalling is what happens when you are tunneling TCP through a TCP tunnel. Um, if you have, if you suffer packet loss, then the 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 external tunneling protocol TCP will start asking for packets to be retransmitted, but the internal TCP protocol will also start asking for packets to be retransmitted, which ends up creating a complete bog down of the the VPN protocol. So this is really a fault not of the VPN-ness, but of the particular technology used to implement the VPN. So unfortunately, IPIG, cool and free as it is, it can have problems, which you will see if you're in a, on a connection which is too slow or is suffering from packet loss, you can have problems. The traditional VPN protocols, IPSec and L2TP and PPTP, that we've talked about before they they avoid using tcp just for this reason they have their own um, tunneling protocols and what is becoming my favorite solution open vpn it's able to use udp in order to avoid that problem so it's really i mean encryption is some overhead but it really should no longer be a real problem it's just the implementation of the vpn that can cause problems won't disabling another Viewer writes, secure in Encino. Won't disabling my access points SSID keep my network secure? Now, I thought we'd flatten this one. This is called, this is turning off the broadcast ID. Yeah, we have flattened it, and, and it brings up a good point. We're going to be needing to sort of move forward with these security topics and not continually address things that we have in the past. So, I'm, I'm going to be presuming that we're building on a foundation of knowledge as we move forward and be referring to things that we've talked about. So, so I want to answer the user's question, but I want to say that, you know, um, uh, we've covered this, and it's really going to be important for people to spend some time to catch up on our prior podcasts so that they're moving along with everyone and we're not penalizing the people that are, you know, uh, keeping themselves current. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, we have the same problem on the radio show, on the TV show, and there are certain things that just come up again and again and are worth, I guess, addressing. Um, but but we have covered this one pretty thoroughly. Just the short answer is... Uh, it prevents uh, uh, blanking or disabling the broadcast SSID from a uh, from a node. Does not provide you with security, but it does provide you with a prevention of people using your bandwidth by mistake. It's much like MAC address filtering. If you tune your access point only to accept um, data from known adapters or known MAC addresses, then it will prevent your neighbors from inadvertently using your node and your access point, but it will not prevent someone who really wants to use your connection from doing so. So both MAC address filtering and SSID hiding, they will prevent inadvertent access, but they should not be confused with real security. And finally, could you explain port knocking 
That's with a K-N, knocking, and how I can use it. From what I've heard, it seems like a great solution for allowing controlled access to a system or network. What is port knocking? It's very cool. Unfortunately, it's still very unavailable. <laughs> um, the idea is you uh, say that you have a router that's got no exposed open ports, yet you want to connect into a router from outside. For example, say we were, we were running OpenVPN server and a user wanted to connect into his OpenVPN server, but he didn't want to leave his router's port open and forwarding traffic in all the time. Port knocking is, is it's just so cool. You, you send a, a sequence of packets at your router on closed ports. And, you know, closed ports don't do anything. But the router knows they hit there and it drops them. But the idea would be you configure a your own secret sequence of, of packets <laughs> to send. You mean knock, 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 knock. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and so you configure your own secret sequence to send. Then, and when the router sees it, then it op- it knows it's you because you've given it the secret knock, and then it opens the port and allows your data through. <laughs> so um, I like that. It's kind of like it, a callback a little bit. Yeah, it's well, it's very cool. Um, as far as I know, no commercial routers offer it yet. It's it's becoming available on like you know in in Linux systems and in other uh, open source systems. I hope it becomes a widespread solution. It means you need something fancy over on your computer to send out the special knocking sequence. But you know that's not a big deal, and I just it's a very cool solution. <laughs> Because it allows you to be absolutely stealth until it knows it's you. Oh, and the source IP of the knocking packets. If the router was really clever, it wouldn't open the port to everyone. It would only then allow um, unsolicited packets from your IP from which the knocking packets came. Oh, very important. Yeah. So it's very, it's a very, very cool technology. Like it. And as it happens, we'll be letting people know. Oh, we are? We're going to do some stuff on port knocking, huh? Oh, sure. I mean, as it becomes available. I hadn't really heard about it. I like it. Well, I uh, thank you for making yourself so available, Steve Gibson. It's uh, always a pleasure. Security Now appears every Thursday afternoon. Uh, Thanks to the good graces, I have to say, of uh, your company, Spinrite, and GRC.com. Spinrite is... uh, the world's best file recovery and disk maintenance utility, still available and always getting better. Well, yeah. In fact, it's at version 6, of course. And uh, you're right. It's, it's Spinrite's ongoing sales and success that basically you know pays for my bandwidth, pays for my time, and, and lets me do this. Yeah, because this has pretty much become a full-time job for you here. <laughs> I know. I know, at least with it was with OpenVPN. Um, and, of course, thanks to our friends at AOL Radio who broadcast this show on their podcast channel and offer us the bandwidth so the downloads are free to you. That's at AOLmusic.com. What are we going to talk about next week, Steve? Next week, we're going to sort of start off the new year uh, with uh, talking about how the Internet works. It'll be a review for people who already think they know it all, uh, but it'll answer a question I had in the very beginning and, and uh, that I know lots of people have. You know, what actually are packets? What actually are ports? Oh, and right. How does all that work? We're going to sort of start laying a foundation for security understanding by by talking about some stuff that we've referred to but have never really taken the time to define. We've had a couple of people I saw complain that well, sometimes it's really advanced show and sometimes it's really basic show. But I like the mix because uh, I learned something on all of the episodes, and uh, eventually you put it all together, you've got a pretty good education in how this stuff works and how security works. Yeah, in fact, some people have written that the Security Now podcast is becoming an assignment. Their their, their teachers are telling That's them great. to listen to the podcast. So I like that. Very cool. You're this te- you're the teacher we always wish we'd had. Thank you, Steve Gibson. Happy New Year. All the best in 2006. Look forward to another great year of security now. Here it comes. Take care.